This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you very much for that very generous and moving introduction. I, I can assure you that my and my colleagues' affection for this institution is quite genuine um, and that uh, we take delight in the number of times that friends from here like Paula Findlin and her student Daniel Stoltzenberg have visited us and we expect to have many more visits in the future. I can promise that I will return to the land of the Brooklyn Bridge, Leaves of Grass, and the Sopranos with the warmest memories of attentive audiences and sharp questions out here in paradise. How does a tradition end? Sometimes, like a language, like Cornish, a, a tradition dies with the last person who has mastered it. After Dr. Samuel Johnson read James Boswell's Latin thesis for the Society of Advocates in Edinburgh, he remarked with characteristic bluntness, Ruddiman is dead, sir. Ruddiman is dead. Thomas Ruddiman, printer, publisher, Latinist, and librarian of the society, had corrected the Latin of every thesis submitted to it before they were allowed to be deposited and published. Now he was gone and with him that tradition of precise and elegant Latinity that had also found an expression in Ruddiman's own wonderful edition of the Latin works of the poet George Buchanan. Scottish Latinity died with Ruddiman. The crowd-pleasing death scene of the Ars Historica, by contrast, is hard to identify, to identify with that of any single individual or even with the publication of any single deadly critical book. I can provide a terminus ante quem, a date at which the Ars Historica was clearly dead. On the 22nd of December, 1766, the Senate and Prorector of the University of Göttingen in uh, Germany celebrated the opening of a historical institute, a pioneering historical seminar under the directorship of Johann Christian Gatterer, Professor Ordinarius of History. This institute promised the young scholars and aristocrats and jurists who flocked to the University of Göttingen the most up-to-date historical training in Europe. No less a figure than the great classical scholar Christian Gottlob Heine celebrated the Institute's formal initiation in a powerful address, given, of course, in Latin. For 12 years, however, Gotter had already run his historical academy. He had taught his pupils to envision history, so Heine explained, as an interdisciplinary inquiry into past societies as a whole. He taught them to reconstruct, and I quote, and this quote is not on your, hand, your song sheets, I'll tell you where those begin, the spirits of peoples in genia populorum, their customs, their rights, their institutions, laws, arts, crafts, all the products of the human intellect. Gatter or Heine said had portrayed history not as a set subject embodied in texts, but as an object of research 
potentially as interminable as modern psychoanalysis. Students of history couldn't merely read past historians. They must survey the past itself as you would survey unknown lands, forcing their way through difficult passages, cultivating the parts of Clio's territory that remained wild, using every clue and every technique that Gotterer could put at their disposal, as he did in a beautifully equipped technical library where they could study facsimiles of different sorts of scripts, seals, heraldic symbols, coins, medals, and all the other forms of monument, as Heine triumphantly concluded, that can bolster the credibility of a historical thesis. It was only just, Heine said, that the university recognized Gattara's achievement by making his institute a formal part of its institutional apparatus. In this short speech, Heine was formulating the creed of a new historical school, that Göttingen School of History, whose own history has been traced in important books by Herbert Butterfield, Carlo Antoni, and others the school which laid the foundations on which Leopold von Ranke and other rather ungrateful heirs would build in the 19th century. Though Heine couched his thoughts in Latin, he clearly, he clearly reasoned in the most up-to-date German of his own time, the ingenium populi that he identified as the primary object of historical research was that enticing but evanescent spiritual being which Herder, whom he greatly admired, called the Volksgeist. Yet the forms of historical research that Gattara taught and Heine described seem strikingly familiar to any reader of Baudouin or Baudin. Heine admired Gotterer's interdisciplinary approach, his effort to trace connections between the geography and climate from which each people had come and its national character, rather as Heine's friend Winkelmann traced connections between the beauty of Greek art and the beauty of the Greeks themselves, um, won by their ceaseless exercise under the mild Hellenic sun. Baudin alone in his Methodus adumbrated almost every element of Gattara's method, particularly the geographical approach that held that every nation's character was originally hewn by the soil from which it sprang and then later carved into new forms by travel and the impact of new climes. These bright, shiny, tungsten-forged tools of historical research that Heine celebrated, the levers and wrenches that enabled Gatter and others to make their radical break with scholarly tradition, already gleamed in the workshops of the 16th century theorists who called for the creation of an art of history. Heine knew all the traditions of learning better than any 21st century scholar possibly could, he was not just a professor of Greek, but the manager of Göttingen's unique university library. In the 18th century, the only library in Europe that actually had an acquisitions budget for each year. In that capacity, and in the heart-stoppingly energetic manner of the German professors of the day, Heine not only classified every book that came in, he read every book that came in. In fact, he wrote 8,000 book reviews as he classified the new acquisitions each year and published them in the Göttingen Gelehrte Anzeigen. For all his enthusiasm for the cutting edge of English political economy or Robert Wood's essay on the original genius of Homer, moreover, Heine was steeped in the traditions of humanistic scholarship. And again and again in his works, he traced what he called the historia literaria, the earlier development of scholarly work. 
Why then did Heine see no connection at all between the new historical scholarship that was practiced in Gottera's Institute, that he himself practiced in his groundbreaking essay on the spirit of the age of the Ptolemies, which really calls into being the modern idea of Hellenistic culture, and that had, that had been practiced in the tradition of the Artes Historicae. How did Baudin and Baudouin and Patrizzi die so firm and absolute a death that even Heine hadn't heard of them, didn't bother to see them off with a good obituary. Well, the tradition of the Ars Historica died slowly, as I'll show. But what I want to argue is that the spirit of the genre died before the genre itself. Died for two sets of reasons, one internal and one external to it, leaving practitioners of the genre to stagger on for another century or so, bloodless and empty, like vampires in search of a slayer. Now, in its heyday, the Ars Historica really did seem to carry everything before it. In the decades just before 1600, these treatises gleamed with all the prestige and charm that can invest a fashionable genre. Anyone who read Les Mots et les Choses in the late 1960s or 1970s, as I did at the recommendation of a young assistant professor named Baker, um, will know what it felt like to read Baudin in the 1570s and 1580s. Bliss was it, at least for Baudin, to be alive in 1580 in Cambridge, where on every Don's desktop a copy of his work lay open. Baudouin Baudin convinced the learned patricians who managed universities and academies across Europe to see history as they did as a formal discipline that needed to be taught systematically, to establish chairs of history which did not figure in the traditional organization of knowledge, and to support historical research. They, lecturers and professors of history were appointed from the Jesuit college in Rome to lighten that thrusting and innovative Calvinist establishment which became the most innovative inter university in Europe. Justice Lipsius, the great votary of Tacitus who promised to recite the entire texts of the histories and annals with a dagger at his throat to be plunged in if he made a single mistake, <laughs> taught Tacitus to enormous audiences at Leiden. Moreover, he supervised exercises in which soldiers dressed as Romans and Spaniards tried their skills against one another, exercises which were staged by Morris of Nassau, who used the results as he built the professional army with which he managed to fight off the Spanish tercios and maintain the independence of Holland. Lipsius, the historian, was an academic star, perhaps the first star historian in the history of our craft. His successor, Joseph Scaliger, received for not teaching history, since he refused to give lectures and was only willing to do research, the highest salary not only in the University of Leiden but in the entire city, as well as permission to confine himself to research and private tuition for the occasional promising pupil, like the young Hugo Grotius, who edited Marzianus Capella under his supervision at the age of 12. The Leiden University Library, the greatest in Europe around 1600, devoted more shelves to history than to any other subject and equipped all of its visitors with all the technical tools of the new interdisciplinary history, globes, atlases, views of cities, everything you needed to historicize the dry narratives in the texts. 
Now, the new professors of history worked in differently mysterious ways their wonders to perform. Take the English examples of Degory Weir, the first Camden prelector in history at Oxford, and Isaac Dorislaus, the first Brooks reader in history at Cambridge. Dorislaus, a Dutchman, came to England in 1627 um, by one of the academic uh, institutions that are still familiar to us. He was recommended by his internationally renowned teacher, G.J. Vossius, who didn't want to move to England at that point himself. Weir, a Briton, came to Oxford by another of the academic channels with which we're unfortunately still familiar. He enjoyed family connections to the Dorsetshire gentry and close ties to many English antiquaries. There was no damn nonsense about merit in his appointment to the job. Doris Laus lectured on Tacitus. Weir lectured on Florus a historian of the Roman imperial age, the tone of whose four short books on the rise and decline of Rome, Sir Ronald Syme described as pious and ecstatic, condensed Livy. Doris Laus electrified his readers, literally what little hair they had stood on end, and after his second lecture, the authorities in Cambridge shut him down and sent him off to do research and not <laughs> excite the undergraduates with the news that monarchy in Rome had been illegitimate. Weir didn't. In his 154th lecture, which is the first text on your sheets, which he held in October 1631, he denied accusations of laziness, even though, as he had to admit, he had so far only covered one book of Flora's 50 modern pages in eight years. He left no doubt why he had progressed so slowly through his text. It was his audience's fault. Your own eyes, he chided his auditors, can serve as witnesses. Note the critical historian's appeal to the eyewitness. How slowly, how lazily my audience assembles, how infrequently and sluggishly they come. And when they arrive, they loll about and look at me in a posture of idleness. They hear me with insolence and prejudice. No one comes voluntarily. No one stays to the end. They complain that they've wasted their half hour by not wasting it. My fellow academics, my hearers lack diligence, they lack attentiveness, their professors are despised and neglected, as is their learning, letters lie in the mud. No danger of subversion here. Weir was pioneering what would become Oxford's secular tradition of lectures delivered to walls and empty seats. <laughs> Yet Doris Laus and Weir, for all the differences of style and delivery, were attacking their tasks in recognizably similar ways, as the reading of Arte's Historicae had taught them to do. Both made clear in their different fashions that you read history to understand past states and constitutions. I can't find in any source, says Doris Laus, that even in the time of the emperors who usurped sovereignty in the, from the free republic, that the democracy was ever legally abrogated by use or by lex. Weir, the rise of early Rome, Weir explained in Oxford, and because it's Weir, I will just mention and not read it aloud, could be understood only if you followed the people's division into different orders, the development of the Roman constitution, the rise of the Roman art of war, each topic one for systematic treatment, which of course slowed his progress through Florus to even more Antarctic Scott-like um, sloth. Both drew general axioms, as the Artes Historicae had taught them to, from the events they described and made clear that these applied to action in the present as well as to the study of the past. Anyone who has partial sovereignty, says Doris Laus, must have the right to defend that part. After all, the Belgians debated this point with the King of Spain using arms. 
It is an axiom, you can see why he was fired, it's an axiom of politics, Weir stated, as he described the campaign that Regulus waged against the Carthaginians in Africa, to push wars as far as possible into hostile territory. For by doing this, we terrify the enemy and force him to recall his forces to defend himself, a point he supported with meticulously precise and apposite references to Machiavelli, Amirato, and Baudin. Lessons like these proved crucial, not only to readers of history, and there were a fair number of very well-trained readers of history across the learned world of Europe, but also to writers. Then the politic historians of the decades around 1600, de Toux and Davila and others, built their histories by reversing the principles of exegesis that Baudin and others had taught, and they were not the last to do so. The tradition of critical history didn't die out with the Gallican generation, but as recent work by Jacob Saul, Carolyn Sherman, and others has shown, lived on in the, paradoxically, in the hands of Colbert and other agents of the French state. The information gathering machinery of absolutism itself came out of this tradition of critical humanist scholarship. And yet, even as the eyes of students across Europe glazed under the hail of historical bibliography, parallels, and axioms, even as the arteries of academic dignitaries snapped like pipe stems when history men drew radical analogies between the past and the present, the sands of the Ars Historica's hourglass were definitively running out. What I want to do is, first of all, to explain in a little more detail than I did last time how the Ars Historica worked and was meant to work, how it was meant to carry out its magic. Then I'll attempt to show why the genre, quite soon after its inception, ran into insuperable intellectual problems. Now, the Ars Historica was meant to serve highly serious ends. It was meant to teach young men who wouldn't have position and power in society how to read history critically and draw lessons from it, how to understand older constitutions, how to see which aspects and institutions they might profitably borrow and apply in their own time. The primary texts were written in Europe's first great moment of religious war, the 1550s and 1560s, and were an earnest effort to provide a way of finding intellectual solutions to that grievous wound in the fabric of the Res Christiana. How would you do this? Well, the Ars Historica tells the young historian how to process the historical texts you read how to choose bits from them, how to make critical use of them, and then how to file them so that you can access them easily and readily. E.H. Carr, in What is History, warns his readers that the facts of the past are not like fish laid out on a fishmonger's slab. They're like fish swimming in the sea. You have to catch them before you can consume them. The same was perfectly well known to Baudin and Baudouin, whom I'm sure E.H. Carr never read. They, too, set out to show the young reader how to catch the fish, how to remove its scales, how to fillet it, and then how to prepare it for use. Now, the basis of the technology they offered, the literary technology that they provided, was rhetorical. This was a, the great age of humanist rhetorical pedagogy, Jesuits and Protestants alike, 
taught as the primary skill they offered eloquence. And it was in the toolbox of rhetoric that the artists of history found their primary mode of sorting information. Fifty years ago, Robert Bulgar showed in a classic page of his The Classical Tradition and Its Beneficiaries that the humanist key to all mythologies was the notebook. By compiling notebooks of examples and phrases, the influential teacher Guarino Verona taught his, told his pupils, you could master both the content and the style of the ancients. And once you'd recorded the texts you selected, the notebook would be at hand for the rest of your life, like a diligent and obedient servant, ready to provide you with exactly the material you needed. And speaking of servants, if young aristocrats found it too tedious to compile notebooks on their own, Guarino said they could easily find a talented young man who would take down the passages they thought interesting as they read. In, this was the, the beginning of the notebook method in a largely oral world of rhetorical humanism. In the print-burdened and print-illuminated world of northern humanism 50 to 100 years later, a, word, a world of the written rather than the oral word, Erasmus told readers of his uniquely influential textbooks that the notebook would be their tool to master the entire classical heritage. Erasmus's textbooks, by the way, had a vogue which the shade of Michel Foucault could only envy. Of the books that belonged to students who died while at residence in Cambridge in the 16th century, and a great many students died while at residence in Cambridge in the 16th century, more than half were by Erasmus. The most popular of these, his beautifully titled On Copiousness in Words and Ideas, was a notebook that told you how to make notebooks, how to collect facts, similes, and phrases so that you too, once you had reached the end of your studies, could, like Erasmus, give 150 ways to say thank you for the letter in perfect Latin. Erasmus's adages, a set of thousands of aphorisms with commentaries, offered something like ready-made notebooks for the young Latinist, organized under catchy titles and elegantly cross-referenced indices. If a schoolboy had to warn a friend to finish his dissertation, finally, he wouldn't just badger him as we do. He would say, manum de tabula, take your hand from the painting. If the schoolboy had to tell his king as he might well have to in a schoolboy oration, that he shouldn't make war on other Christians, he could say, dulce bellum inexpertis. War is very pleasant to those who haven't tried it. Uh, I've often thought that Erasmus would have things to say about the present, but enough of that. In the course of the 16th century, rhetoricians honed and sharpened and shone the notebook and began to apply it to other fields as well as to rhetoric itself. Take the case of David Ketraeus, an influential Lutheran teacher in Rostock. He advised his students, and he'd been trained by Erasmus's Protestant friend Melanchthon, so there's a good genealogy, to work out a set of loci communes, common places for every art. Literally speaking, that means positions where you store things, though, of course, in practice, it means headings in a notebook. The correct way to read a text, Catreus explained, was to dissect it into useful parts and to attach every little bit of meat to the proper locus or heading. 
the reader should enter sentences, moral statements, under the loci of ethics, such as the virtues and vices. Enter arguments under the loci of dialectic. Enter figures of speech under the loci of rhetoric. Enter examples, similitudes, apologues, proverbs, apothems, all into their proper paper pigeonholes. Catraeus offered students, in fact, not only instructions, but a splendid list of possible loci, which is on the second page of your sheet, um, a list so random that it um, reminds one, actually, of that mythical Chinese encyclopedia that Foucault borrowed from Borges, body, weight, music, astronomy, geography, astrology, magic, and then, interestingly, history, the origins, increases, transformations, defeats, and destruction of nations and peoples, medicine, medical men, anatomy, the parts of man, and so on. Quintilian had explained long before, and this passage as others I'll just allude to, that the young student of rhetoric should make formal notes on the historians. They would nourish his style, and they would provide him with examples that he could use in arguing for his clients, so he wouldn't have to depend on the clients to supply all the material he was going to use in his speech. Now, Quintilian cautioned against too much imitation of historians whom he considered showy, None of that milky richness, the lactea ubertas of Livy for the orator. Nonetheless, he did suggest that reading the historians was a specially important duty for rhetoricians. Now, Catraeus, as I pointed out last time, taught formal courses on both Herodotus and Thucydides, book by book and chapter by chapter. And it was only natural for him to recycle the rhetorician's notebook, which he used so deftly, into this new field. It's sacred or profane history, he says in his Ars Historica, it's most useful to lay out axioms about counsel and narratives of events and the punishments of crimes according to the loci communes, the commonplaces of virtue and vice. Now, Catraeus saw that you couldn't simply use the rhetorician's normal scissors and paste to make historical notebooks. One must, he counseled, take careful account in making a historical notebook of circumstances, times, persons, and places. One must contextualize. In practice, however, Catraeus treats the process of reading history, making it into a notebook, as a very simple and monological one a slicing and dicing of the ancient historians. Let me just give one example. In preparing students to read the Melian Dialogue in Book 5 of Thucydides, he tells them, I quoted a bit of this last time, this text contains many very sweet principles, most worthy of being memorized as the fairness of the proposal that we should instruct one another, Kathezukian, at leisure, is not open to question. For these two virtues, uh, fairness and leisure, should shine out and appear with special brilliance in all human disputations and colloquies. Now, it's important to know what Catraeus did here. First of all, he does a little silent amputation from the Greek. This is the first clause of a sentence, and it has the particle men in it to indicate that. He takes out the men. Needless to say, he doesn't quote the second clause in the sentence in which the Melians say to the Athenians that their preparations for war had rendered this pious wish for a peaceful conversation moot. Nor did he describe the outcome of the dialogue, the total annihilation of the Melians and the destruction of their city. So, Catraeus's notebook was a good sausage machine. 
It took whatever you put into it, Herodotus, Thucydides, Livy, and made it all into a uniform body of spicy links that you could put in the appropriate place in your own historical narrative. He remained within the roomy but not infinite confines of the rhetorical tradition. Yet everyone knew that applying examples was a complex matter. Machiavelli in The Prince highlights the case of Agathocles of Syracuse, a brilliantly successful prince, but one who used such evil means that even Machiavelli found it impossible to praise him, even in The Prince. Victoria Kahn has shown in a wonderful study that he made this point and used this example precisely to problematize the example itself and to show that applying examples was a matter not of fixed rules but of a kind of supple prudence which you could only learn in the course of reading. Baudin took Machiavelli's lesson and others and tried to weave them into a much more sophisticated form of notebook than Catreus's. And this is really the Ars Historica at its height. Baudin sets out to transform Catreus's rhetorical system into an automatic interpretation machine. The reader of history, he advises, should make himself three notebooks with the low-keyer headings of divine, natural, and human history. And then once you've laid them out, he says, we'll insert everything worthy of recall that we encounter in reading history in its proper place. And in the margin of the book, we'll add the notes for the different sorts of human affairs, counsels, sayings, and facts, and in capital letters. So first of all, you fill it and sort and store the material. Then the storage machine becomes an information, an interpretation device. Then we have to see what's honorable, shameful, or indifferent in each case. And then we should write CH, that is concilium anestum, honorable counsel. Or if you want to reject stoicism and separate the honorable from the useful and the shameful from the useless, I won't resist. Then we can take four categories, shameful, honorable, useful, and useless. Suppose we then take Themistocles' advice, which the people made him share with Aristides. And this is when Themistocles suggests to Aristides the just that the Athenians burn all the ships of their allies and thus assure their control over the Aegean. Since this council seemed useful to Aristides, but not honorable, we'll put it under the heading how to take counsel for the state and add in the margin the letters CTU, that is concilium turpe utile, a shameful but a useful plan. <laughs> now, in this point, you can already see what Baudin is doing. The proper sort of examples, in his view, requires not simply their assignment to the proper loci. It requires a further process of scrutiny and classification. He transforms the notebook from a sausage machine into a much more complex Rube Goldberg device designed to make the reader not only collect facts from the past but think critically about them. Now, some, many contemporaries for example, Johannes Wolf, who prepared the standard anthology of these texts and put Baudin's book first, saw the notebook as an in Baudin's sense as an extraordinary innovation. I don't want to leave you with the impression that everyone did. Um, and I will just point out that his Baudin's brilliant, mean-minded critic 
the Danzig scholar Bartholomeus Keckermann has a wonderful parody of Baudin, which is in your next sheet, which I won't read out, where he imitates Erasmus's Ciceronianus. There, Erasmus has this Ciceronian who has three men following him, carrying three huge dictionaries of Ciceronian words from which he cobbles together everything that he writes. So Keckermann imagines Baudin staggering around with three notebooks the size of telephone books um, and, and you know, full of information that he can't possibly use. And he draws this wonderful analogy. He's like an insane gardener. This is, of course, the age of the mannerist garden who puts all the seeds together, doesn't delimit spaces, and expects that he's going to produce something other than a, what Keckermann calls a promiscuous mess. In fact, however, Baudin's practice was far more sophisticated and far more productive than Keckermann allows. And I'll give one obvious example. The central new doctrine of Baudin's political thought, first stated in the Methodists, is the doctrine that one must identify the place of sovereignty in a state, that that is the crucial analytical tool. And Baudin makes clear in a crucial passage of the Methodists that it's precisely by comparison and collation in the notebook that he has worked this out. Therefore, by comparing the principles of Aristotle, Polybius, Dionysius, and the jurists with one another, and with the entire history of states, I see, I find, that the principle of authority in the state has to do with five functions. The first and most important, appointing the highest magistrates and delimiting their duties, then making or abrogating laws, declaring and putting an end to wars, making the final appeal, taking the final appeal from all magistrates, and the power of life and death. So here, Baudin seems to show that if you take all the material you collect, if you assemble it systematically, and if you scrutinize it, in this case, not through the lens of virtues and vices, but through the lens of a political theory, you will actually arrive at a coherent, comparative historical analysis of past constitutions, one that gives you new analytical tools in the course of processing past historical information. It's, I think, a powerful argument, and it's one, and I think it's the one that explains the extraordinary success of Baudin's book, why this particular kind of notebook seemed to offer something radically new. And yet, why stop with the notebook? Why worry so much about the sources you put in the notebook? In the end, after all, the proof of this particular pudding was not the historical erudition that underpinned it, that sort of provided its ingredients, but the political lessons that you drew like plums from its top surface. And perhaps one could make the comparisons in an even more effective way if one dropped the hermeneutical apparatus, if one simply compiled information without so much reference to its origins and its context. And that's exactly, I would argue, what Baudin did 10 years after the method in his six books on the Republic, where when he returns to what he now calls the doctrine of sovereignty, he simply states without qualification and without piling up the examples that the Roman dictator and other officials did not have sovereignty in the modern sense. Baudin, in other words, passes from something like a formidable effort at comparative history to something like a formidable effort at comparative political science. 
And it's the second book which proves, of course, the great success, the one that's translated into all the European languages and provides the intellectual foundations for 17th century absolutism. But it's also that second book which drops the discipline of historical context, which ignores the qualifications that history provides. In his first book, Bodin was prepared to admit that though every state had sovereignty, it could be divided. The Roman state, for example, had had mixed sovereignty shared between various assemblies and eventually its rulers. In the Republic, he insists very oddly by historic standards that Rome had never had a mixed constitution, that a mixed constitution indeed was a contradiction in terms. This seems to me in a way to be a natural consequence of notebooking. After all, as Anne Blair has pointed out very powerfully, once you take any kind of text and sort its contents into bite-sized bits and put them in notebooks, it's all too easy to begin to make them take on different colors, pull them even farther from their context, use them like anonymous colorless counters rather than emphasize their unique and identifying possibilities. At all events, it seems to me that it's precisely here that we can see in the triumph of the Ars Historica the first and primary reason for its downfall. The Ars Historica lived as a machine for drawing political principles from the past, and it died even in the hands of its most brilliant practitioner because there were other ways to do that, less responsible to historical context, but more effective. Keckermann, in effect, says exactly this in the passage that I quote next. It, because many don't sufficiently re realize that you need a theory and seek only to record in some sort of commonplaces whatever they read in histories, it's impossible to describe the pointless torments they inflict on themselves. But if you approach assembling commonplaces after establishing a solid political theory and a flexible method, you will meet a very different fate. For if you know the method appropriate to a given subject, you will know its form as well. Here, Keckermann, in effect, describes exactly what Baudin himself had done in the 10 years that separated his method from his republic and his constitutionalist moment from his absolutist moment. It is, I think, in this second form, as details paired of source and local context that the, that the substance of a comparative method that will be used throughout the 17th and 18th century becomes recognizable. It's this second method, which is the method of Grotius, the great comparative lawyer, the method of Pufendorf, and in some ways even the method of Locke himself. So the notebook, the information gathering, sorting, and judging technology par excellence of the Ars Historica was both a key to its success and, I would argue, a vital element in its failure, since it could be further refined and replaced by different sorts of method. The Ars Historica crumbled at its own core, but it crumbled at other points as well, and I'll merely mention one of these. As I indicated, not without controversy at the end of my last lecture, the artists of history were cosmopolitan. They called for the study not only of the ancient past in Greece and Rome, but of the modern pasts of the West and the non-West, of Turkey, of the New World, eventually even of China. Here is Campanella. Read the individual histories of all the nations, French, Spanish, German, British, Ethiopian, Turkish, and Moorish. 
receive the traditions of the New World from their inhabitants. Likewise, what the Chinese, Japanese, and Tartars, the inhabitants of Ceylon, Persia, India, and other nations record in writing, or by memory of their origins and their deeds. Jesuits and voyagers have written much about this. But this should really be a task for kings, especially the Spanish ones. Here you see a program for universal history to be based on a critical sifting not only of historical texts, but also of travel accounts. This was a very reasonable connection to make. These historians saw geography as a key analytical tool in understanding history. More to the point, history and travel were closely parallel in method in the late 16th and early 17th century. When Ioannes Phrygius wrote his Ars Apodemica, his Art of Learned Travel, an instruction for young men making their uh, grand tours, he explained to them that they should bring with them a roster of questions to ask when they visited a particular city. Its situation, its climate, its fortifications, its sewers, its sidewalks, its springs, its culture, its intellectuals. And he then gave four model tours, Basel, Zurich, Paris, and ancient Athens. You could use the same method, in other words, across space and time, which really became almost convertible. Keckermann, in his comments on the Ars Historica, makes this clear when he says, as in gathering precepts, so in gathering examples or histories, we make progress not only by reading, but also by observing, that is, either by hearing or by seeing. Whatever you hear or see in your travels of counsels, sayings, and facts, work out immediately to which discipline it belongs and note it down under the heading. You, this is incredibly useful and often more profitable than the reading of history. So here Keckermann envisions the young student of history not only as a reader but as a traveler, a disciplined traveler, moreover, who makes his tour into a formal inquiry that will eventually inform his practice in public life. Fulk Breville, Lord Brooke, writing the statutes for his professorship, made clear that he actually saw travel as the best source of information for a teacher of history. And in the statutes, he says, such as have traveled beyond the seas and so have added to their learning a knowledge of the modern tongues and experience in foreign parts, and likewise such as been brought up and exercised in public affairs shall be accounted most eligible if they be equal to the rest of the lecturer's office and reading. We are here very close to Descartes in the discourse on the method where he explains that there isn't really a great deal of point studying the past, since after all, travel can teach you anything that history can, teach you chiefly that it's different over there, as it was different back then. So the Ars Historica, in calling for the assimilation of learned travel, the Ars Apodemica, or Ars Peregrinandi, to the Ars Historica, or Ars Legendi, actually undermined one of its own fundamental claims, the claim that history offered the prime source of prudential knowledge and training for people who were going to live an active life. By the mid-17th century, in other words, as the classical political philosophy of the classical period takes shape, you can see that the Ars Historica looked old-fashioned, that it didn't offer the kinds of information that one wanted, even when one engaged in the same kind of comparative and systematic political study that the Ars Historica had promised to support. But there were problems outside as well as inside the Ars Historica. 
the structure didn't only collapse because of its own flaws. In the first place, history itself was changing in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. The politic history that displaced chronicles, the work of retired statesmen who dictated their measured periodic statement sentences in their studies, unraveling the truth about difficult matters in quiet and peace in an era at studio, gradually morphed into a vast array of different kinds of historical practice. No two of them alike. Marmorial narratives produced by courtiers under royal sponsorship, as smooth, empty, and opaque as a modern university brochure. Brushed covers with subversive accounts written by radicals to expose the machinations that had made possible the compromises of the Council of Trent or the massacre of St. Bartholomew. A flood of little histories accompanied these big books, Flugschriften, Krantos, Avertimenti, Raguagli, pamphlets, some printed, some handwritten in commercial scriptoria, tiny little information creatures that scampered like mice around the feet of the vast official narratives, offering subversively entertaining accounts of battles, reports of monsters, gossips of gossip about the private lives of the good and the great. Gradually, governments learned to manipulate these nimble new media. The Venetian government, for example, as Anastasia Sturiadis has shown, described the War of Malta by paying pamphleteers to write what passed for eyewitness accounts of particular battles and then paid their official historians to write authoritative accounts based on these eyewitness pamphlets in their turn. As early as 1633, Gabriel Naudet, librarian to Cardinal Mazarin, makes made clear that a modern student of history and politics, an up-to-date reader, found himself confronted by a range of genres that the critical techniques of the Ars Historica simply couldn't control. The politicus, he says, the political specialist, must also become familiar with those historians who approach libel in their excessive freedom, not to say audacity, who bring into the open the secrets of princes and the hidden deceits and wicked deeds of their ministers, everything that ought to be clothed in dark night like the Eleusinian mysteries. They bring Diana into the open, naked and unclothed, and put her on view. This category includes Procopius, Matthew Paris, Pierre Dailly, Machiavelli, and so on. And then there are all those libelles, what the king whispered in the queen's ear, what Juno gossiped about with Jupiter. Here we find ourselves in the world not of Jean Baudin, but of Robert Darton, the world of the subversive, desacralizing pamphlet. The range of texts that amused and astounded Naudet widened further in the decades that followed as, and spilled from the decorous library into the informal disputatious coffee house, which became the center for historical disputation. By the time of the glorious revolution, by the late 17th century, it would have been ludicrous to suggest that you could find in Baudin or Baudouin rules that could help you assess the credibility or lack of it of this vast range of books at every level from the erudite folio to the minute and ephemeral pamphlet. Brendan Dooley has written well to the subversive impact of these new kinds of history. So contemporary history no longer supported the kinds of analysis the artists of history had offered. Neither, even more frighteningly, did ancient history, the Bible and the Greeks and Romans. After all, the Ars Historica began as a way to read Livy, Thucydides, Tacitus, Polybius, 
But by the end of the 16th century, even the strongest ancient texts were being shaken by blows of the philologist's hammer. In 1598 and 1606, Joseph Scaliger created tidal waves in the rock pools of philology by publishing the fragments of the genuine Barossus and Manetho, not the forgeries of Aeneas of Viterbo, but genuine work by Near Eastern priests written in Greek in the third century BCE. Barossus, for example, tells the story of how a gentleman named Oanes, who had the body of a man and the head of a fish, climbed out of the Red Sea and taught humanity the arts and sciences. This was not the sort of text on ancient history that humanists really wanted to read. Even worse was the real Manetho, who gave a full list of Egyptian dynasties that unfortunately began not only before the universal flood, but actually before the creation of the universe itself. Not everyone was ready to accept these texts as authoritative. Even Scaliger's close friend Isaac Kasaubin jotted in his copy of Scaliger's book, I don't see that these imaginings of foolish pagans are very useful. Over time, however, the new texts threatened the whole structure of ancient historiography and its validity as fact. Edward Gibbon, more than a century later, recalled how as a boy he had made the dynasties of Egypt his top and cricket ball and how his sleep had been disturbed by the difficulty of making biblical chronology come out. Biblical chronology, of course, also became a burning question in the 17th century as variants between the different versions of the Bible and contradictions between the biblical record at Egyptian and Chinese antiquities came in the 1650s and after to be the object of tremendous public debates, a story Paul has told very well and others have told after him. Ancient history, in other words, also became a field of dubious battle. By the beginning of the 18th century, Giambattista Vico was ready to abandon the whole effort to make sense of the early history of the nations by reconciling these accounts and testing them in the conventional way. He dismissed all of these early histories as fantasies woven to gratify national pride, no more worthy of belief than the modern fantasies of such wild men as Olaf Rudbeck, who proved that his city of Uppsala was the ancient Atlantis of Plato, who, of course, could doubt it. As pressures like these multiplied, the fissures in the Artes Historicae, in the Artes Historiae gaped. If you wrote such a text from the standpoint of learning, as Vossius did in the middle of the 17th century, you simply had to ignore these issues, as Vossius did, setting his sights resolutely on the texts that he could talk about safely. And if you took account of these tremors and quakes in the realm of learning, you couldn't sustain the old idea that prudence and scholarship could somehow stem from the same intellectual operations. Take, for example, Bolingbroke, one of the late classicists of the 18th century who wrote an Ars Historica, who still believed in the Ciceronian commonplaces about history as philosophy teaching by example. Bolingbroke purchased his belief that history could still instruct at the price of completely abandoning the the learned tradition. He admitted this was controversial. A man must be as indifferent as I am, he wrote, to common censure or approbation, to avow a thorough contempt for the whole business of these learned lives. But that was exactly what he did. Contempt was all he showed for Baudin, for Scaliger, and all their like. I doubt, he says, that Baudin's method would conduct us, would leave us time for action, 
I think it would make us unfit for action. A huge commonplace book wherein all the remarkable sayings and facts that we find in history are to be registered might enable a man to talk like Baudin, but it'll never make him a better man or enable him to promote like a useful citizen the security, the peace, the welfare, or the grandeur of the community to which he belongs. In Bolingbroke's work, the assertion that history is the, mag the mistress of life, magistra vitae, served to introduce not a dialectical method of reflection like Baudin's, but a univocal classicism like Pope's. By contrast, the Erlangen professor, Johann Martin Claudanius, who taught history for many years, abandoned any belief in Historia Magistra Vitae. He devoted his pioneering studies of hermeneutics and history to close reasoning about what he called the Zeapunkt, the individual standpoint given by birth, nation, and culture within which any historian had to write. Claudanius, Bolingbroke, of course, was an amateur, a gentleman. Claudanius was a professional scholar who had cut his historical teeth in the 1720s studying ancient Homeric scholars and pointed out that what seemed their strange efforts to allegorize Homer actually had to be understood historically in the light of their own situation, their efforts to reply to Plato's criticism of poetry. He studied them very precisely, catching them, he said, like craftsmen at work in their shops. And he applied that same precision and scrutiny to the study of historical sources. But as he did so, something like a historicism emerged, too radical to support any kind of practical or prudential lesson. For Claudanius, the point of reading history was to encounter each past historian in his absolute isolation and singularity. The lessons of history were radically, uh, radically, one could almost say, deconstructionist, purely hermeneutical. In this context, I think we can now see why Christian Gottlob Heine couldn't find any connections between the worlds of the Ars Historica and his own strikingly similar world of historical scholarship. That particular form of scholarship that Baudouin, Baudin, Possevino, and Patrizzi had cultivated had become not a living presence in the world of scholarship, but a kind of set of shadows and contradictions long before Heine's time. I don't know that the Ars Historica was dead. After all, Gordon Wood is giving trilling lectures this spring at Columbia University on the theme that we can learn from history. But this particular tradition of reflection on it had clearly died by the time that Bolingbroke and Claudanius took its remains in their contradictory ways. Well, Bolingbroke says in a characteristically happy phrase that to converse with historians is to keep good company. Many of them were excellent men, and those who were not such have taken care to appear such in their writings. <laughs> So far as I know, most of the writers of Artes Historicae were also excellent men, and I've certainly found them excellent company. I hope that you've also enjoyed this brief expedition into the largely unknown territory that they planted and cultivated for all too short a time. Thank you.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.